we don't have fear or pain on our side. If your CPA says, you know, if, if you take this deduction, you're going to prison. You listen to the CPA. But if your ad guy says, if you do this, it's going to be stupid. You know, nine times out of 10, they go, okay, great, let's do it. That's Rick Stanton. And Rick Stanton was in the advertising industry in Seattle for over 40 years. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Now, Rick has a lot of stories to tell. He just finished a book called How to Sell a Chicken, 40 Years in Advertising and Design, and some of the stories I can actually tell without getting sued, I hope. So I'm going to talk to Rick about his book and some of the anecdotes that he can talk about during uh, his time here in Seattle in the advertising industry. I guess today is book club day because my second interview is going to be with an associate professor at the University of Arizona Laboratory of Three Ring Research. Her name is Valerie Truay, and uh, she wrote this book, and it's just out on Amazon. You know, I didn't really think I would be interested in this subject per se, but trees can tell us a lot, like about the fall of the Roman Empire and the story of Genghis Khan and how trees and vegetation can tell us how he won his victories. We'll be talking to both Valerie and Rick coming up on this show today. If you'd like to talk to me about anything as it relates to going into business for yourself or any other subject, I would be happy to talk to you. My phone number is 206-459-5536. That's 206-459-5536. Back with my interview with Rick Stanton in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Recently retired advertising executive Rick Stanton who spent 40 years in the advertising industry in Seattle, wrote a book about his personal experiences in the ad agency business and many of the encounters he had over the years with clients and competitors. Many suggest that you can tell a book by its cover. Well, how about you can tell a book by its title? Here it is. How to Sell a Chicken, subtitle, 40 Years in Advertising and Design, and Some of the Stories I Actually Can Tell Without Getting Sued. I hope. Well, I hope so too, Rick, because I don't want to join you as a defendant for broadcasting this interview and talking about your book. But let's get to it. My first question, how did you come up with the title of this book? Well, I had the Washington Friar Commission, which uh, is the uh, in-state company that grows and packages uh, chicken and sells it locally. And so I had that account for 20 years which is unheard of in the advertising business. Nobody ever has an account for 20 years. And so when I first got those guys as an account, 70% of the chicken in the poultry cases in the state of Washington were from California or Arkansas. 
And so one of the things that we did is that we started a campaign based on the fact that if you're not putting local grown food products on your family's plate, you're poisoning your family. And so we, without saying that, we basically positioned the fire commission as the place where you could get grown in Washington on it. It was fresh, local, the best quality you could possibly find. And so in about two or three years, we reversed the number and uh, 70% of the product in the poultry cases became grown in Washington. I do remember the campaign. It definitely had some reach and frequency there. And I can say it did make an impact for sure. It wasn't a hard reach to get people to understand that if it's from here, it's better. For sure. I mean, it's patriotic in the sense. Well, you know, and if you think about it, there's a lot of farm-to-table kind of messages that, you know, abound in, in the state of Washington when it comes to local food products. Given the dynamics of the day, knowing where your food comes from is a, is a big deal. Before we get into some uh, questions about the book, how did you get into the career you were so much involved in for so many years? Well, it was a kind of a circuitous route. When I graduated from the University of Washington, I had a degree in secondary uh, art education, and I ended up teaching high school and coaching baseball in Kelso. And after three years of doing that, I had a minor in graphic design, and after three years of teaching in Kelso, I sat down one day and I did the math and figured out how much I was making an hour based on what I was getting paid, and it was like a dollar five. And I thought to myself, you know... <clears throat> It, this this ain't working. And then the mill was starting to churn with secondary education and controls from the state. I could see it coming that this was not going to be fun. So I quit, moved back to Seattle, worked for a guy that was an absolute uh, flaming alcoholic. I worked for him for about uh, six months. And in the process of, of doing that, I generated some graphic design work on my own. And I finally had enough of this guy and I quit. I had $1,400 in my bank account and no idea if I was going to make this work. And so I just decided I'm going to make the leap, go out on my own. And I did. And 40 years later, here we are. You obviously knew all the players in town for 40 years. What are some stories that you can share that are in your book? Well, you know, I was fortunate because when I started doing what I did, the advertising and design business in Seattle was really just starting to pop. And I was kind of in the in the middle of the Renaissance days of that, and there was a lot of stuff going on. There were a lot of really great people, a lot of really good thinkers, really great idea people, and I was just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. I had a good go of it. There were a lot of great people like Mike Mogelgaard, Jack Erig, um, uh, Jim Copacino, you know, just a lot of really good, smart people that were in the business and made it a real fun test of your of your uh, own ability to compete with those folks. And that's before everything started consolidating and going back to New York and L.A.? Absolutely. One of the things that I really detest is the fact that advertising became a byproduct of bean counters. It was about profitability. And I have one story that's in the book that I was approached by a national company that had just established an office in Seattle. They were looking for some help. They uh, got in contact with me about maybe a possible merger, and so we went down that road, and there was a guy in the, in the middle of all of this who was well-respected in the business, and we got down to it, and finally, at the end of it, their financial person, their CFO, said, we can't do the merger, and I said, well, why not? And she said, well, because you're not 27% profitable on all of your accounts. And I said, well, am I profitable? And she said, well, yeah, you're profitable, but you're not 27% on all of your accounts. 
So, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And at some point in the middle of this lunch that we had, I said, you know what, this isn't how I do business. I I want nothing to do with you and your company. And, you know, walking away from that deal was a big moment. And as a result of doing that, six months down the road, I ended up with another big chunk of business that came my way and life went on and things were good and you do what you do. But the bean counter mentality has, in large respect, has killed the advertising business because it's not about money. It's about ideas. And and what was the, uh, you had something that you wrote, what we know or don't know about the advertising industry. And if I think you were inferring that if you think you know what advertising is by watching Mad Men, you really don't. It's always been a hard business and it's complicated by the fact that unlike a CPA or an attorney that's a fee-based profession, we don't have fear or pain on our side. If your CPA says, you know, if, if you take this deduction, you're going to prison you listen to the CPA. But if your ad guy says, if you do this, it's going to be stupid. You know, nine times out of 10, they go, okay, great, let's do it. The advertising, like you would say, don't do this. And then they'll still say, no, I want to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't tell you how many times a client, you know, we need to hire a photographer to do this particular phase of whatever it is we're doing. And they say, well, why do we need to hire a photographer? I have a camera. One of the chapters in the book deals with a fellow named Dell Denker, who was the marketing director at Safeway Northwest. And on a road trip one time, he asked me, he says, you know, how many, how many spots does it take for the message to work? And I thought, God, you know, this guy is 20 years my senior. He's been in this position that he's in for 30 years, and he's asking me a question like that. And after I thought about it for about 30 seconds, I said, well, Dell, it depends on what you have for sale. The business was so visceral when, when I was in the middle of it. There was just this sense of tangibility that made it really fun to be a part of. And I, I talk to people that are still involved in, in the business right now, and, and they sound like they're suffering. Let me switch to something else. Ad writing, what do you think makes a great radio ad? There needs to be, whether it's humor or whatever the genre, there, there needs to be some essence of conflict. But I also think that understanding that telling a story doesn't necessarily mean 12 chapters. It means 30 seconds, and there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you have to think in terms of telling a story. It's storytelling. If you can't stand up in a room full of strangers and tell a joke and get people to laugh, you probably can't write great copy. Well, let's just leave it there. My thanks to Rick Stanton, who's a retired Seattle advertising executive. Again, his book, How to Sell a Chicken. 40 years in advertising, and some of the stories I can actually tell without getting sued, I hope. He's had numerous uh, positive reviews on the book. I would like to read one. In quote, radio and TV commercials aren't essays, orations, or manifestos. They're spots, concise, targeted, and spare, turning on a dime in 30 seconds' time. In his ad game memoir, Seattle's Rick Stanton talks in spots. Anecdotes and characters abound. Lessons are learned and spurned. Bridges are built and burned. Stanton's hilarious celebrations and laments are fast and loose and loving. And spot on. And that's Hal Calvin. If you'd like to check into the book or actually purchase a copy of the book, I'm sure Rick would really appreciate that, you can visit Marketing Northwest. The website is marketingnw.com. That's marketingnw.com. No spaces between the words. Well, we are in the midst of 
having some things eased up during this lockdown. And uh, I hope everybody out there is uh, staying safe. I got good news. My wife hasn't killed me yet, so that's always a good thing. But uh, a friend of mine from way back wrote something about what his parents went through living in Seattle at the time. I'm just going to get into it. Now, this is during World War II when he said, for the duration of the war, the government made them black out the windows at night and they were not allowed to drive after dark or in situations when they needed to use their headlights. This was done to prevent a Japanese bomber from determining it was over a city. Now remember that while my parents read about the Americans being killed in Japanese battles, they never really saw a single Japanese bomber over Seattle, nor did they know of anyone who had been killed by a Japanese bomber. Thus, it would seem pretty silly for them to have to curtail their lifestyle based on what they saw. Were the steps the government took necessary? In hindsight, no, since no Japanese bomber reached our shores. But what if it had? Would it have been better to lose a city so people weren't inconvenienced by having to turn off their lights or not drive with headlights? And remember, they did this for four years. Doesn't seem a bit silly to get all bent out of shape for something that hasn't even been going on for five months. And that's a thanks to Bruce Amundsen who wrote that. We're just going through now with previous generations, our parents' generations and generations before that. This has just been our turn. I received an email from a PR company promoting a book called Tree Story. Now my first inclination was to pass on it. But this particular individual has sent me some pretty good guests in the past, so I thought I would take a closer look. What caught my eye was that trees can tell us about world history, such as the major victories of Genghis Khan and how that came about through knowing something about trees and vegetation, and the locations and timetables of pirate ships that sank, and what it can tell us about the location of where they were at the time that they met their demise. And maybe there's some sunken treasure around. Now, how is this possible? I spoke with Valerie Truway. And she's the author of Tree Story, and she is also Associate Professor of the University of Arizona Laboratory of Tree Ring Research. Now, I kicked off the discussion with Valerie that clearly demonstrates my vast knowledge of tree research. My knowledge about tree rings, or like everybody else say, well, that's how we know how old a tree is. And the first thing I wanted to ask, is that true? That is true. You can get a very close estimate of the age of a tree by counting its rings. And the reason why is that each ring represents one year in the tree's life. Each spring, the tree starts growing and starts forming its ring. And then in the fall, it stops growing. And that's the end of that ring. So however many rings a tree produces, that's how old it is. So that is not urban legend. That is true. How did you become interested in tree rings? It was a bit of a coincidence. Um, when I was looking for a project for my master's thesis, I really wanted to go abroad. And so I was looking for a subject in Tanzania, and there was this one subject that involved tree rings. And I had never heard about tree rings before. But I figured, all right, if I get to go to Tanzania while doing tree rings, then sure, I'll do tree rings. But then when I came back to the lab, and then when I started looking at those tree ring samples at that wood under a microscope, 
that's when I really got hooked because it's really beautiful. If you look at wood under a microscope, it's really, it has very intricate detail and matching the patterns in the tree rings between different trees. It's almost like solving a puzzle. So I kept doing it. That's how I became a dendrochronologist. And are you kind of a pioneer in this field or has a lot of people done this in the past? Well, I'm definitely not the first. So the field of dendrochronology originated about a century ago um, in the 1920s. The first person who made a science out of tree rings and measuring tree rings was an astronomer originally who was interested in energy coming from the sun. And so he figured, this was in the early 20th century, he figured that because trees live a long time and they take up energy from the sun, he could maybe learn something about the sun by looking at tree rings. And that's what he started doing. His name was Andrew Douglas. And he was very successful at it. So um, in 1937, he established the Laboratory of Turing Research at the University of Arizona, which is where I'm a professor at now. Well, you know, it's interesting because it's actually a pretty new science. And you say like 1937, this was established, like astrology and things like that. Uh, there was some major breakthroughs in like the 14, 1500s. But this is kind of a new uh, science then. Yeah, and in a way it makes sense because it combines a lot of other lines of science. For instance, uh, we make use of archaeological wood, um, and we the dendrochronology allows us to date, is, is a very precise dating method in archaeology. Um, and also, we're, it's pretty heavy on uh, statistics, to be honest, what we do. It requires a lot of computing capacity, and with the invention of the PC, uh, after the 1980s, you can see that our field has really grown a lot once our statistical power became more and quantity, uh, calculating power became better. So the PC really helped in terms of doing study into uh, tree rings, obviously. It sounds like that. Yeah, yeah, and combining them and analyzing them properly. I'm, I'm sure it's the same for a lot of fields, given how much statistics is involved in a lot of what we do. Yeah, computers do allow us to do that much faster. Now, one thing I saw in the release about your book that has come out is that you can take tree rings and do some connection to the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah, so one of the studies I was involved in, we used the rings in trees as well as in archaeological wood to look at the climate of Europe over the past 2,500 years. And what we found is that during the 3rd to the 6th century, so around the period of the fall of the Roman Empire, the climate in Europe was variable. So it wasn't necessarily all that dry constantly or wet constantly. It was more that it flipped from one to the other for a couple of centuries. And that is what we did is then see whether those climatic shenanigans really, whether they could have influenced what happened to the Roman Empire. The weather extremes then. Yeah, so there's various ways that could have happened. So it's, it's hard to deal with these kind of climate fluctuations as a society. The Roman society was an agricultural society. It was largely based on agriculture. And those kind of fluctuations of the climate over decades are difficult to deal with. 
if it's one wet year and then a dry year, you can build up reserves and then use the reserves the next year. If it's a much slower change, then you can adapt. And they didn't have the technology that we have now. So those kind of changes, like a few decades of dry and then a few decades of wet, it's very difficult to deal with. Yeah, I just watched uh, the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. Yes, certainly if they had anything on that level, you could see where you could almost wipe out a civilization. Yep. Yeah, and we see that in, in multiple other occasions as well around the world. For instance, the latest phase of the Mayan culture coincided with a big drought as well. Or in the American Southwest, uh, the Mesa Verde drought and the uh, Chaco Canyon drought. So those movements of people away from their coal curd with a big drought in the American Southwest. How about Genghis Khan's victories? Yeah, so that's a very good example of the opposite. So these are colleagues of mine who looked at shearing from Mongolia. They looked at how wet and dry it was in the past in Mongolia over the last 1,000 years. And so when they zoomed in on the early 14th century, they saw that this was a very wet period. So it's actually the opposite, which allowed for a lot of grass to grow. And, and Genghis Khan, his, his whole uh, power, his military power, was based largely on on horses and thus on how much grass they could eat. So the more grass was with the wet periods to feed his horses and this allowed him to expand his empire. Wow, that's amazing. And I, you could see something like that. That is out, that's pretty stunning. How about the tree rings and finding pirate treasure? <laughs> yeah, so that's a, a little bit of, of a more complicated story. But what it boils down to is that we can look in the rings in trees, not only in living trees, but also in anything that's made out of wood, as long as, you know, it has enough rings in it. So that's why tree rings are important in archaeology. And so I have one colleague, her job is really cool. She studies the rings in the wood in shipwrecks. So she dives to shipwrecks, then collects samples from the wood, and that allows her to not only date when those ships were built, but often also to see where the ships were made, where the wood came from that those ships were built. Fascinating. Again, I had no idea. That's very interesting. Yeah, and so to link that to uh, pirates, shipwrecks, as well as tree rings, to study hurricanes in the past. So the more in the Caribbean, the more ships wrecked, the more storms there were, we assume, because the main reason why ships wrecked, let's say, in the 15th, 16th, 17th century was because of storms. You know, back then, the Europeans, they would travel with their ships to the Americas, and they would be hit by hurricanes, but there are no hurricanes in Europe, so they had no clue what was happening to them. And they would be overwhelmed by these hurricanes. So we counted shipwrecks from, you know, 1495 onwards to see which years would have been, there would have been a lot of hurricanes and which years there would have been fewer hurricanes based on those shipwrecks. And what we found is that in the second half of the 17th century, there was actually a low in shipwrecks. And we interpret that as a lull in hurricanes as well. So we, there's, there's fewer hurricanes in the late 
uh, second half of the 17th century than there was before and after. And lo and behold, that's also the period of the golden age of piracy. So um, that lack of hurricanes allowed pirates to go on a rampage. Interesting. Jeez. And uh, one thing that caught my eye is that uh, an earthquake in the Cascades. Now, I can walk out my door right now and see the Cascades. And, you know, the Cascades runs from southern British Columbia to northern California right through Oregon. And then I kind of read what the release had said, and it said, well, they had this earthquake, and then it uh, caused a tsunami in Japan. And so then I went, okay, well, that's fascinating, but we know that. And it didn't jump out of me. Then I reread it, and it said that led to an orphan tsunami in Japan. Is that am I reading that correctly? No, it 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 was the it was the ocean smashing into Japan. But um, they call it an orphan tsunami in Japan because Japan has a long history of, of written text, and so we're talking about an earthquake from the year seventeen hundred, the winter of the year seventeen hundred. Um, and so they have a lot of written documents in Japan that talk about a tsunami there, shipwrecks, what we were talking about earlier, about agricultural land that was flooded by this massive tsunami over 600 miles of, of Japanese coast. Um, but whereas they had a lot of documents about the tsunami, there was no documents, no written evidence of a, of an earthquake that could have caused that tsunami in Japan. That's why they called it the orphan tsunami, as in we have a tsunami, we know it happened, but we don't know where it came from. Because at the same time, in the Cascades, as you mentioned, some of my colleagues that were working there from the U.S. Geological Service found what they call ghost forests. These are forests of dead trees, basically, um, that have been standing dead for three centuries. And when they sampled them and used streamings to date them, they found that all of these trees and four forests in the Cascade, they all died in the winter of 1700. And so they put one-on-one together. The U.S. Uh, Geological Survey tree scientists started talking to the Japanese tsunami historians and figured out that it was this massive earthquake in the Cascades that traveled all the way across the Pacific and caused um, a tsunami on the Japanese coast. Where are, where are those years. trees located? Oregon, Washington, Northern California? I think Oregon and Washington. That's Valerie Troway, Associate Professor at the University of Arizona's Laboratory of Tree Ring Research. You can get a copy of her book by visiting Amazon.com. Just input Tree Story Book. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. My thanks to Rick Stanton and Valerie Trouet for sharing their wisdom and experience with all of us today. Quote of the week, the sad truth is that most evil is done by people who never made up their minds to be good or evil. And that's Hannah Arendt. In case you missed it, Fox Fraud, some people call it Fox News, but I think fraud is much more accurate, posted doctored photos of Seattle protesters. A few photos showed a person with an AK-47 that clearly had been photoshopped. Another had someone running from a burning building. Yes, there was a burning building, 
The problem, though, it was in Minneapolis. And this uh, brings to mind a very important quote from Thomas Jefferson. An educated citizenry is a vital requisite for our survival as a free people. Again, that was Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> 